0: I'm Daniel Levine and this is Rare Cast. There's increasing recognition of the important role that patients can play by providing their insights into the drug discovery and development process. The Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center and Global Genes will be hosting the second annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit in Philadelphia, May 19th, at the Sheraton University City Hotel for a day-long exploration of how rare disease patients can better get their voices heard in this process. We spoke to David Fagenbein, Associate Director of Patient Impact for the Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center and Research Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Perelman School of Medicine, about the changing view of rare disease patients, their emerging role in the drug development process, and the value they can provide to researchers, regulators, and drug developers. David, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We're going to discuss Penn Medicine's Orphan Disease Center, an upcoming rare disease patient symposium it's holding in conjunction with Global Genes that looks at sharing patient voices through the drug research and development process. But let's start with the Orphan Disease Center itself. Can you explain what the Orphan Disease Center is and and how it operates?
1: Sure. Uh, At the Penn Orphan Disease Center, we are a group dedicated to bringing together players from across industries, from academics um, to industry to patient advocacy groups, to help to advance and accelerate rare disease research with the goal of developing drugs and cures for rare disease patients.
0: So this is a real conduit for collaborations. Why why is collaboration so critical, particularly when you think of the challenges of discovering and, and developing rare disease therapies?
1: Oh, it's crucial. Uh, All of us play such vital roles, um, whether we're academics, industry, or advocacy, uh, and no one can do this alone. So the Penn Orphan Disease Center recognizes that and and wants to serve as this conduit, And, and it's so important for collaboration in the rare disease space because patients, uh, patient numbers, by definition, are going to be small. So there is not going to be one center with thousands of patients that can work in a silo on its own. Rare disease requires collaboration because there are few patients distributed around the world. Um, and so researchers need to work together. Pharmaceutical companies need to leverage. Um, academic research support, patient communities need to all work together. Um, because, again, there's there's not only p- limited patients, there's also limited funding available. Um, So you just have to make every dollar count and make the limited resources you have stretch as far as you can. And the only way to do that is to all work together.
0: Uh, You offer a a unique perspective. You're, You're an academic researcher, you're a physician, and a rare disease patient. Listeners of this podcast may recall your story and your experience getting diagnosed and treated for a rare autoimmune disorder known as Castleman's disease. How does your ability to think like a patient and, and a doctor and a, a researcher help in, in working with people who have different demands and realities when it comes to collaborations?
1: You're absolutely right. And, and having those those multiple perspectives has certainly helped me as I've worked with various rare disease groups through the Orphan Disease Center and also directly on Castleman disease. Um, which is, uh, as you mentioned, the disease I'm battling as a patient and advocate. And it's been so eye-opening for me because before I was a patient, I was a medical student studying um, to become a physician. And in parallel, I've now completed my studies, and now I'm on faculty at Penn. So I've worn different hats. I helped lead an advocacy organization, and and I see and I can understand the challenges that each of us face, and um, and they're very clear, and, and, and they're... Um, there are hurdles that, that we all need to get through, but, um, but from having the multiple perspectives, that certainly helped me, um, to realize just how valuable every perspective is and that, that the desire and the passion of a patient group cannot be replaced by anyone. You have to have patients at the table. No one will fight like the patients and their families to speed things up. At the same time, you have to have pharmaceutical companies at the table. No one can develop a drug or a cure without pharmaceutical companies and of course you have to have academic researchers helping to drive things forward from a from a research perspective and and so everyone has to work together and uh, and from having the multiple perspectives i can see just how valuable each one is
0: well this year's symposium is focused on the patient voice and drug development there there seems to be a real change underway in the way patients are viewed by researchers drug companies and, and regulators how, how has this view changed
1: i think it it really has begun to change because regulators um, have really—they've uh, demonstrated and they have pronounced that they are really putting emphasis on what the patients need. For uh, over a hundred years, drug development has moved forward where um, scientists determine well what what the patients want, what's good for patients, and let's do a clinical trial to show that that we've fixed and helped that thing. Um, but the FDA has recognized that. While some of the things that scientists might think um, be a success for a drug, patients might not actually think that that's success. And there may be other things that patients care about. The FDA has been really strong in pushing forward this concept of patient-powered drug development and involving patients. And with that, pharmaceutical companies and, and academic groups have, have recognized that um, just how important it is. And I shouldn't give FDA all the credit. I think that pharmaceutical companies and academic researchers um, just based on the fact that they interact with patients often and see how valuable patients are, um, are also crucial um, to this recent shift to involve patients in research. And then I should also say um, another big reason why patients are getting so involved in research is that uh, they won't take no for an answer, and we uh, we are pushing. Uh, so even if even if a pharmaceutical company or an advocacy or academic group doesn't want our voice, they're going to hear our voice. And so um, so we're all coming to the table, and uh, I think it's going to be fantastic for rare disease drug development.
0: Well, one thing I imagine that's helped patients gain a seat at the table is their their role as funding sources. Some rare disease patients have been quite successful at raising money and and becoming scientifically sophisticated and and really use that leverage to shape a research agenda. Given their race against the progress of a disease, funding often carries – uh, uh, an insistence on data sharing that some academic researchers are not always comfortable with, are, are they changing academic culture at all?
1: Absolutely. Uh, patients, um, myself included, um, get so frustrated when we hear that there is data that is sitting at one institution that can't be shared with another institution, or that um, uh, one pharmaceutical company is keeping data in-house that could potentially provide answers for our diseases. We, we don't um, we don't put up with that, and we um, certainly do everything that we can to try to push for data sharing. And I think this push for data sharing and also, to your point, the seat of the table that many of us have, because we've been able to be successful at fundraising, um, has meant that there is certainly a move towards more data share.
0: Well, how should someone willing to fund research think about where they can get the biggest bang for their buck? How, how should someone think about prioritizing where the need is?
1: Yeah, it's a challenge. I think that's the most important aspect of rare disease research, as I said before, is that there's limited resources and limited funding available. So You need to make every dollar count. And to make every dollar count is not the easiest thing in the rare disease space because there often are not very many researchers in a particular field. So how do you figure out who's the best? How do you recruit? Um, even better researchers to get involved. And and my recommendation for someone who has a rare disease that wants to be a part of driving forward research, the first thing um, I would would recommend doing is to look to see what groups already exist out there. Um, There are a lot of rare diseases with dozens and even over a 100 different foundations that at the end of the day, unfortunately... Um, cause some redundancies and, um, and issues with, uh, with collaboration when there are so many players. So I would recommend first looking to see who's already out there and who's doing what seems to be the best work. And, and by best work, not how much money are they giving out, but what kind of results are they getting. Are, are they posting press releases for new drugs that came out based on the funding um, grants that have resulted in major publications and breakthroughs? To, to look at impact in terms of impact, as opposed to dollars invested. And um, if there are not, uh, if there is not a, a great group out there, then then you can consider creating your own foundation, which does take a lot of work, a lot of hard work, um, but it does put you in a position to try to drive forward research. And, and I highly recommend if you do take that approach um, to really reach out to all of the physicians and researchers worldwide in your community to find out from the community crowdsource what should be done um, and then once you have a prioritized list, then try to actually recruit in a targeted fashion the best people to do those experiments um, rather than simply raising money and saying anyone who has a good idea, apply. Try to be a bit more, um, I try to leverage the crowd and then be a bit more targeted with your recruitment.
0: Drug companies need to be able to find patients and get their participation in clinical trials, but there are other aspects that are critical, particularly with regard to a rare disease that may not be well characterized. Where a, a natural history may not exist, determining meaningful clinical endpoints may be unclear. What role do patients play in helping get answers to those types of questions? That's
1: a great point. So, the really, the only way to get those kind of data is through establishing a natural history patient registry. And unfortunately, there are um, many, many, many different patient registries that are all done in many, many different ways, which means that um, we haven't all been able to learn from one another and to improve and iterate. We've, we've kind of many of us in the rare disease space have created our own, um, which, which certainly has caused some challenges. But the good news is there, there are natural history registries out there. And um, so the first thing a patient can do is to look to see, is there are a registry that already exists for my rare disease? And if so, how can I contribute to it? Can I give my medical records to it? Can I fill out a survey every couple of months? What can I do to give my data? Because at the end of the day, the, those data, that information is, is really going to go very far for um, solving your disease.
0: Do, do you think there's greater recognition today among drug developers about the value of getting input from patients with regard to clinical trial designs and with clinical endpoints? What, what, what should companies appreciate about the insights they can get from patients?
1: I do think that that there is a trend towards that. I think that it's, it's FDA driven. I, I think that beyond just the fact that the FDA likes having patient input, I think I think pharmaceutical companies also benefit from patient perspectives for a couple of really important reasons. One is just tangibly that the patient knows best. The patient knows what their disease is. We know what we're going through. We know what we struggle with the most. So we should be the ones talking about and coming up with the endpoint that the drug should be um, trying to make a difference against. Then secondly, pharmaceutical companies often um, really enjoy bringing patients to their offices or to their meetings because that gives their employees an opportunity to actually see the people that benefit from their drugs, and that is really powerful for the thousands uh, of pharmaceutical company employees that really do dedicate their time and energy toward developing drugs and to actually be able to see the beneficiaries and to be motivated by why it is that they work to develop drugs.
0: You, you mentioned the FDA earlier. There's There has been growing effort at the FDA and in Congress to acknowledge and, and value the patient's voice and incorporate it in the drug development and review process. Have you seen meaningful change take hold in that regard? And and what do you think the ultimate payoff will be?
1: These are great questions. Um, There certainly have been um, drugs. I can't cite them directly off the top of my head. But recently, over the last few years, there have been drugs where um, patient-powered decisions around endpoints have been considered by the FDA. I don't believe primary endpoints, but at least secondary endpoints where patients said that this test is meaningful to me. Um, And and, and those have been part of the FDA review process. Uh, And that's that's a big change. Again, it used to be that the scientists and the physicians were saying, well, what endpoints should we be going against, are going towards in our our clinical trial? And now patients are, are contributing their ideas. I think that another uh, example of this trend is, is PCORI, Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Um, it, uh, it was funded and initiated as part of Obamacare, so I, I actually don't know what um, the long-term legacy of PCORI will be, um, considering um, some of the uncertainties uh, around healthcare care and Obamacare. But, um, but that is certainly an example where Congress has put their money where their mouth is and said that we are going to fund patient-centered outcomes research, and we are going to fund research that involves patients. And many of the grants that have been funded by PCORI are actually led by patient principal investigators, um, which is certainly not the case for um, for most funding bodies.
0: Well, the University of Pennsylvania Orphan Disease Center will hold its annual patient symposium with global genes on May 19th at the Sheraton University City Hotel in Philadelphia. Who should attend and what can they expect this year?
1: So I think anyone who has a rare disease has a loved one with a rare disease um, and or is involved in rare disease advocacy already should come and attend. Uh, this, As you said, this is our second year doing it. Last year was a terrific event, and I think it will be even better this year. We um, will be providing information for, for folks at every level of the rare disease um, space, whether you're new to the space. As I said, if you have a rare disease, if you love someone with a rare disease, um, if you work in the rare disease space, um, it will certainly um, be beneficial for each of you. And just the opportunity for the disease Center to work with Global Genes, just such a terrific and important advocacy organization, um, is really uh, an honor. And I think it also um, shows this this um, effort that we all need to be focused on, which is collaboration and doing things together in unity. And uh, it, it, really looking forward to working with Global Genes again this year.
0: David Faggenboim, Associate Director of Patient Impact for the Orphan Disease Center and Research Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine. David, thanks as always.
1: Thanks so much. Great to chat with you. Have a great rest of your day.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Laboon Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.